The next effect of a cause is gaining confidence. Now the cause was hearing the true Dhamma. Each person has to have enough intelligence and discrimination to know what's true and what's not. And that intelligence and discrimination is supported by looking inside of oneself. If one can't look inside of oneself to see what's true for oneself or not, or not, one is going to be beset by skeptical doubt for years on end, maybe to one's death. One has to be able to see whether that what one hears or reads is actually in accordance with what one experiences. And if that is so, confidence must arise. If it is not so, one should leave it alone. If one cannot ascertain it, one needs to do something about one's own ability to introspect, to pay attention to oneself. If one has seen that that spiritual path applies to oneself, then one uses not only one's discriminating mind anymore. Our discriminating mind plays tricks on some people more than on others. It plays the most tricks on those who are not in touch with their feelings. And gradually less with those who are in touch with their feelings. Because we consist of heart and mind, of thought and feeling. And if we can't bring the two into balance, the more unbalanced we are, the more difficult life is, the more impossible it will be to grow and mature. We need both those faculties. We have them. But if we only use one of them, the discriminating mind, then our feelings are not engaged. And it is very easy. In fact, it is taught in some Buddhist traditions to debate the same topic, pro and con, from both sides. The discriminating mind can do both. No problem at all. We even did it in a very minor way in school as children. We can find reasons for anything, even for mass murder. It's been done before and undoubtedly will be done again. 
It's not somebody else's mind. There is only mind and body. So if we do not use all our faculties, then we will always be in a quandary. Which way should we think? And then we may have, on top of that, some resistance to knowing that we ought to do something about ourselves. Maybe we can remember that our parents told us also the same thing and we didn't like it. That can be a hang-up and can carry over. But if our feelings are engaged, none of that danger arises. So this comes about when we see quite clearly that that what happens within is well and truly explained and delineated in the spiritual teaching. Because what then happens with our heart is that we have a relationship to a teaching. We feel that this is true for me. Whether it's true for the next one, he or she will have to figure that one out. All that matters is whether it's true for me. And if it's true for me, obviously I can do something with it. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how many philosophies, conjectures, symbolisms, or metaphors one remembers. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is what I can do with it. Because we have heart and mind, we need to balance ourselves within those two aspects. If there is too much attention to our emotions without any discrimination, then that's emotionalism. And we will be feeling as if we're in a rocking, rocking boat where the waves of our emotions are the waves of the ocean that rock the boat constantly. And we're trying to find a safe harbor somewhere to anchor. And if we do the opposite, if we try to figure everything out through logic and through the mind which tries to explain what it knows, we will go around in a circle. Because what we know is not sufficient to gain wisdom. What we know is sufficient to make a living and to read the books and to hold a, an intelligent conversation. But it's not enough to become totally peaceful. If it were, why aren't we? We've got enough knowledge. In fact, we've probably got too much.
So, knowing and explaining and discriminating mind cannot do it for us. However, we mustn't think that that means that we should not explain anything to ourselves. Both aspects have to be used, balanced. Our experiences come about through our feelings. But if we don't understand those experiences, they're quite useless to us. They will have to come again and again until one day we do understand them. So first is the feeling and then is the intelligent mind with its understanding. I like to compare that to a small child putting its hand on a hot stove and having a lot of pain from that and being upset and angry but not having a clue that it came from the hot stove. So we'll put its hand on the stove again and again until it finally dawns on the child. That's what I've got to keep away from. It's not the stove's fault. It's my fault. I shouldn't have to, I don't have to put my hand on it. That's the understood experience. That's where wisdom comes from. That is wisdom. Everything else is an attempt at trying to stay alive. Now the child gained wisdom through that experience because it finally understood it. And if we watch small children, they gain a little bit here and a little bit there until they can finally cross the street without the danger of being run over. And then it goes on from there. So now, we being grown-ups, supposedly mature, we still have to go through the same process. But, if we don't have the experience, what are we going to understand? If somebody had told that child, now you know that stove is hot, and if you put your hand on it, it will burn and it will hurt you. There's very little chance that the child would ever have understood what it's all about. It needed the personal experience. And then, when it had the personal experience, there was no question anymore. That's what it is. It's hot and it hurts. It's the same with us. We need the personal experience. And how do we get it? By being attentive to ourselves, to our feelings, to our reactions. So if we hear the true Dhamma and are quite convinced that that is true, then we have to more and more get into experiencing what we have heard. 
experiencing mindfulness, experiencing the introspection of knowing my reaction to whatever is happening. We have reactions to practically everything. It's very rarely that we don't have one. And those reactions are reactions to feelings because our thought processes also produce feelings. So we are constantly engaged in reacting to our feelings. That's what we have to become aware of. Now, when we become aware of something like that and realize that our reaction has been unwholesome, unskillful, producing dukkha for ourselves, and we're able to substitute the reaction for a skillful one because we have learned that substitution in meditation. That moment, confidence can arise within. Confidence that this is a path which works even at the beginning. It is said of the Buddhist Dhamma that it has an excellent taste at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. It is said that just as the ocean tastes of salt everywhere, so the Dhamma tastes of liberation no matter where we touch it, beginning, middle, or end. Now, if we have gained peacefulness for one second only in the meditation because we've been able to concentrate for two seconds, that too proves that this path will bring us peacefulness if we learn to control our mind, to train it. That arouses a feeling inside, a feeling of having found an avenue which promises protection, security, safety, like an avenue of beautiful, huge old trees that give shade and protection where one feels at ease. This kind of confidence touches the heart. Unless the heart is touched, the mind alone will never do it. The heart that gets touched, that gains this inner confidence, becomes open. It doesn't look for loopholes how to deny the validity and the truthfulness. On the contrary, it looks for more ways of proving for oneself that this really works, which means that one is willing to practice more, because otherwise how can one prove it? If, for instance, we do loving-kindness meditation and a person 
whom we don't like changes his or her aspect a bit in our heart and we come, become more reconciled, less aggressive towards that person, more at ease with him or her. Again, we have a proof that this is a pathway to peace and joy. Faith is a word that we don't like to use because it has a connotation of blind faith, which was entirely against the Buddha's teaching. And yet, it is a stronger word than confidence because it has the connotation of love and reverence and respect. Unless we can arouse within ourselves love, reverence and respect for a spiritual teaching, a path, a spirituality which transcends all worldly conditions, our practice will only be half-hearted. Unless we have this wholehearted feeling for what we're doing, it can't work properly, can it? We've got to be wholehearted, committed to whatever we do, whether that's a job or a marriage or bringing up children. If we don't do it wholeheartedly, it won't work properly. There'll be all sorts of snags. And worst of all, there'll be so much dissatisfaction within us. The spiritual path should never bring any dissatisfaction. It has to be a path of joy. It's not reaching the end, which is the joyful occasion. A person who is reaching the end is totally equanimous. The joy is for the one who is traveling the path. If we can't do that joyfully, if we can only think of the discomforts and of the difficulties and inconveniences, then we're using our mind to deny the possibility of our own emancipation. All of us have this faculty within. We all have the seed of enlightenment within. And if we can remember that about each human being, it will help us to diminish our hate, our dislikes, our judgments, our recriminations. Every single human being carries the seed of enlightenment within. The Buddha taught very ordinary people like ourselves if they hadn't been carrying the seed of enlightenment within, he would have been wasting his time. It helps us to know that about others, but it also helps us to know that about ourselves. It is within us. It is like a golden kernel within our heart and mind. And the only reason we can't see the translucence and the brilliance 
of that golden kernel within is because we have too much debris around it that's covering it up. Once in a while, we might get a, an inkling that it's there. When we are very much loving somebody, very helpful, when we are totally concerned with other people's well-being, when there's not the single thought of ego, of wanting or hating, we may get an inkling that this is there, but it's soon covered over again by thoughts and judgments and views. Faith, coupled with wisdom, helps us to keep the pathway open to a loving heart which reveres and respects and not just the spiritual teaching but reveres and respects in each single person the potential that is there. We all have it. The sooner we stop thinking and start experiencing the sooner we can get at it. The thinking in the meditation is a natural phenomenon. It's very natural because it's our only ego support that we have during meditation. When we let go of the thinking, there's nobody there that can tell us that we're really existing. We have to let go and get absorbed in the meditation subject. And when people become truly absorbed for the first time, just for a moment, the reaction very often comes about which says, goodness, what was that? And then, of course, the thinking process has started again. Because we don't even know until it has happened what it's like. But if we don't ever find out in this lifetime, we miss the most important and the most satisfying, the most fulfilling experience that we could ever have the one that will eventually lead us to a total liberation, total freedom. Total freedom from all human foibles and problems. Not because we are no longer human, not because we have to live in a cave away from humanity, but just because within all that which reacts has been removed. In meditation, when we're trying to meditate, we're giving ourselves the best chance to get to that inner 
jewel-like purity which exists in all of us and which does not have doubts, which does not judge, which does not discriminate her viewpoints, which just is. Getting to that which just is, even for a moment, changes our whole outlook. Now, how does this apply to our meditation which we're doing now? Don't think about what you're doing. Experience it. If it's a thought, experience it. Watch it come. If you've missed that, because it's difficult to watch a thought come, watch it being there. Watch yourself reacting to it. Watch it go away. Don't wish at that time it hadn't come because you would rather be concentrated. Just let it happen and be attentive to what's happening. In reality, we all are already just what we want to be. We just don't know it. It's a matter of removing the scales from our eyes. It's a matter of dropping all that which has become our habitual defense system to let go of our habitual role playing on this or on that and primarily to let go of the wish to become. <coughs> we are already. Now faith and confidence in this spiritual path help us to do these things. These are support systems. The good friend, the true Dhamma, confidence. These are support systems. All of them necessary because our mind is weak and easily influenced by others, but primarily easily influenced by all the ideas which float around in it. Now, we have now meditated long enough here in this, uh, on this weekend for everyone to have become acquainted with the unruliness, unreliability, not trustworthiness of the mind. Everybody knows already that the mind is like an untrained puppy dog that cannot go to heel, that does everything it wants because it thinks that's nice. But when it's called to obey and not tear up the carpets and the slippers, it doesn't even hear the call because it hasn't been trained. 
I think everyone has already experienced that kind of untrained puppy dog. But on the other hand, maybe we have already called it to heal and once in a while it has actually done so. And there's elation and joy about that. That's fine. Next time it comes to heal and stand still. No elation, no joy. Just attention. Because if we pay attention, it will remain in that spot. We can keep it that way. If we have elation and joy, we're already off the concentration again. So again and again, we can come back to what we are instead of what we want to become. And what we are superficially is not satisfactory. But what we are on a level of absolute truth, what can there be unsatisfactory about it? Just the, That is just the way things are. Existence is. And when we come to that level of our being through attention, through paying attention again and again, and letting go of the thinking process at least once in a while, we will see quite clearly there's nothing to become. All that is needed is within us. All the wisdom, all the teaching, all the understanding, it all exists within. The thinking won't do it. We have tried. Everybody has tried. The whole world tries to think it out. The thinking has to go around in circles, like being on a merry-go-round, because there's no way out of it. There is no alley or doorway that can lead us anywhere. It will always take us back to the world. We can't do anything else. But when it comes to the inner experience, that becomes deeper. It becomes more purified. It shows us levels of consciousness which we can't have in daily living because we're concerned with other things and thereby shows us a way out of the worldly merry-go-round. If you think for a moment what goes on in the world, in your own world, isn't it a merry-go-round? Doesn't it go round in circles? Or are we going anywhere? Our own little globe goes around in circles. And we do with our endeavors and with our ambitions and with our ideas and hopes and plans. Where can we go with them? 
if we put more of our energy, more of our one-pointed attention towards becoming acquainted with what is really within us, we will see an entirely different picture. We will see that this person that we consider me is a conglomeration of constantly changing particles. And because these particles are always changing, within them we cannot find the satisfaction that we're looking for. And when we have come this far in our understanding, we will see that the world itself is doing just that. And within it, we can't find the satisfaction we're looking for. In meditation, it is very helpful if we start not only with some love and attention and friendship for ourselves, but also with a confirmation that the spiritual path we have embarked upon is the right thing for us to do, that it is the helpful way of living, that we are committing ourselves to it. These are all support systems. I'm not telling anyone that they have to do any of this. These are guidelines, ideas, and tried out ways and means that can help one. The Buddha never told people what they had to do. He always told them what they could do. And if one takes that suggestion and tries it and it works, the confidence becomes stronger, the face turns into love, and the love turns into the opening of the heart because love is a quality of the heart. It goes together with faith. And this quality of the heart cannot be turned on and off like a tap. It either exists or it doesn't. We can compare it to the sun. It either shines or it doesn't. But it doesn't take its rays back when there's somebody down there it doesn't like. Or puts a few more rays down there if somebody has a carrot patch that should grow. It just shines because it's a quality of the sun. The same as with the heart. That loves. Either it loves or it doesn't. But it doesn't take it back when there's somebody there that isn't so nice. And when that love has been established as a quality of the heart, it has that same relationship of love to the endeavor, the endeavor for spiritual growth. Now, if we have 
gained some faith, we will be helped in our love. If our love has been developed, we will be helped in our faith. If neither one of them have arisen, we can work on them. These are all training models, ways of opening ourselves up to a reality which we can never see with our physical eye, which we will never touch with our physical body, None of our senses will ever get near that absolute reality, and yet we can live in it. It's a paradox, isn't it? But that often happens when we speak about absolute reality. The paradox comes from the fact that practically everyone is used to only experiencing what comes in through the senses. The seeing, the hearing, the tasting, the touching, the smelling, and then the thinking. That's all we know. And it's not satisfying. Some of it is nice, and some of it isn't. And for an um, average human being, we get a 50-50 percentage of pleasant and unpleasant. And if that is so, we can be quite contented if it isn't any worse than that. If it's a little better, we think we're doing great. But we know nothing else except all that stuff that comes in through the senses and it keeps coming in all the time. There's a constant input. And because this input happens so much, and we have to, we think, react to it with our mind. We are closed off to anything else. The eye, this eye, can only see color and form, shape. It doesn't know anything, whether that is a lady or a man, pretty or ugly, uh, a house or a, a book or a table. It hasn't got any ideas about that, this eye. This eye knows the color and the shape. And the mind, with its faculty of perception, which is based on memory, says, aha, pretty lady. And then, the thought process, the mental formations, says, oh, like to meet her. Very nice. And there we go. The whole thing starts all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and when I show you this, you in front can probably see it, you all know it's a clock. There's no problem at all. This is a clock. If I show this to a two-year-old, he might think this is a, a building block. Maybe he has had nothing to do with clocks of this kind. 
So, but he has a lot of building blocks at home that he builds little towers and houses with. So he takes it and starts building with it. The eye doesn't tell him, this eye doesn't tell him that this is a clock. It's the mind that tells him. So you can see that with all the input we get through our senses, we are constantly busy. The mind has to constantly explain what's going on. When we hear a sound, the ear can only hear sound. It hasn't got a clue that that's a truck or a dog or an airplane or a cough. doesn't know anything. It hears sound. But the mind has to start elaborating on it and say, ah, coughing, hmm, probably because it was cold this morning. Did I bring my cough drops? I wonder whether I've got them in the room. The room is really too full, too many people in it. wonder why they all want to meditate. So somebody coughed. That's what the mind does, doesn't it? It's interesting. And that's what we need to know about ourselves. We need to know that our senses are keeping us so occupied that we haven't got time nor energy left or any inkling that there can be anything else. That's why we need to meditate. And that's why we need to stop thinking in order to get at that something else. That something else needs a support system. We have all the support systems here that we could need. The group support is important. The hearing of the teaching is important. The silence is important. The uh, group support are the good friends. The teaching is the true Dhamma of the Buddha. And the confidence which arises is when we have proven it to ourselves that it is possible to concentrate even for a moment only, even if it's only for a moment. But what we must be quite clear about is the fact that through meditation we really want to get at something which otherwise we could never become acquainted with because our senses are always in the way. You see, we close our eyes in meditation. We try not to pay attention to the noise. We try not to pay attention to the discomfort of sitting. Touch sensation. There's nothing to smell, nothing to taste. So it's that thinking which's got to go. That's the last one to go. And because it is our only ego support, as I said, it's so difficult to drop it. But we can. If we make up our mind to just become aware of what there is instead of thinking about it. There is nothing to think about. It's all been thought before. And it's all going to be thought again. So why do we have to keep on doing it? There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been there already. And we have thought it all. And we're going to think it again. Let it go. And as we let it go, we come to the inner experience. The inner experience which takes 
a predestined course because everybody's mind is actually identical. So it goes along the identical path. It just shows itself in a little different aspect. And as the mind becomes quieter and quieter, it goes along this course and it can then experience and know something that is without the senses. Where we actually are what we have been all the time, only we haven't known about it. Because for a little while we have let go of the debris. We have let go of all the covers that are within. It all hinges on the thinking process. When you watch the breath and there is and you become aware of the moment between in and out breath when there isn't any breath it takes a bit of mindfulness to know that but it's not that difficult put your attention on that moment the breath will come back very quickly so it doesn't take that long for you to fall off into thinking again but it will give you an a taste or an inkling of what it's like when there is only attention, nothing to think about, nothing even like the breath, just being. When you find yourself thinking, and you have been doing your labeling conscientiously, do something else from now on. Watch the impermanence. Watch the impermanence of the thought. Because when you see the impermanence of the thought, you will see that that too has no real significance. The difficulty of letting go of the thought also is due to the fact that we are so attached to all that thinking because we think it's me. We're so attached to it. Can't be without it. But when you see the impermanence of it, maybe some of that attachment will go. And maybe another thing will happen. You won't be so convinced anymore that that thought needs to be acted upon and that thought must be right. If it's that impermanent that it has come and gone in a flash, why is it so important? That too will help to get to reality rather than to the imposed, self-imposed structure that we have built for ourselves around our thoughts and feelings, explaining them in all different directions. They're so impermanent. What can be so important about them? 
faith and confidence as another one of the building blocks for our spiritual practice. If we can arouse it within, without any difficulty, we're lucky. If the mind balks at it, it says, no, 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 I'm not going to be conned into that. Watch the mind. Watch it reacting. And see how it behaves. And then see why is it behaving like that. It's all part of the spiritual journey. That's enough for this evening. If you have some questions, you can ask them now. Well, hopefully, hopefully you think of nothing. Um, you become aware of the fact that there's a pause. So you're putting your full intention on that pause. You can do it right now. Try it right this minute and see what happens. You don't say there's a pause. You don't think or say anything you just put attention see when you do walking meditation and you're really concentrated on the movement of the foot you don't say are the foot's moving you don't say ah now it's this and now it's that you just with that that's pure mindfulness to be just with that what's happening without explaining it. Can you do it? Have you tried it? Yes. And? Okay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, what else? Anything else? Well, it's either completely clear and all we have to do is just go ahead with it or it's <laughs> totally muddled and nobody knows what it's all about. <laughs> yes. Well, have you been labeling your thoughts in the meditation? And uh, did the thought disappear then? Uh, well, that's impermanent, isn't it? It goes away. Sorry? So that's all it means, that it's a sort of like, in that coming and going? Yes, impermanence, coming and going, that's right. Yes. That is the, uh, the underlying um, characteristic of the whole universe. Contracting, expanding, contracting, expanding. Thoughts of things. 
Come, go. Yes. The labeling of the thought is a thought itself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a it's your expression of mindfulness though. You see, mindfulness is also a mental formation. We haven't got that many choices. We have four parts of mind. Feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. That's all we've got. And uh, I'll talk about those tomorrow so you can check them out yourself. So when you have a mental formation, a thought which you didn't want, that's um, discursive thinking. It just comes. You didn't want it. Sometimes one is actually surprised. Where did this come from? I haven't thought of this guy for 10 years. And there he is all of a sudden, making a nuisance of himself. (laughs) But then, when you use mindfulness to label that, then you're using a mental formation which is deliberate, which you are in control. You want to do that. So you have a great difference between a discursive thinking, which is disturbing and distracting, and the mental formation of mindfulness, which is directed. You see, when you have an understood experience, your understanding is also a mental formation. But the mind can do, it play its games, or it can be directed. Is that clear? Okay. Yes. Going back to your analogy of the uh, untrained puppy dog, mm. uh, when the puppy dog does occasionally come to heal, are you saying that we ought not to feel blessed because that's just the way we are at the moment? Well, uh, not particularly for for that reason, but if we start being elated or every time he does it or depressed when he doesn't do it, then we can't be concentrated. We can either do one or the other. We can either be elated or depressed or concentrated. So if we want this puppy dog of our mind to come to heal more often and stay there, and do what we ask it to do, we'll have to keep our attention on it unwaveringly. But if we start being elated, then we are wavering. So at this particular time, we have to stay with it. After the meditation is over, and we go outside, and we think about what we've done, and we say, oh, that was all right, I can do it much better, and we feel some joy, then that's fine. But not while it's happening. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And a golden stream of light comes out of the center of that lotus flower and it fills you from head to toe. 
with a feeling of warmth, of well-being, of contentment and joy. And the golden stream of light surrounds you with love. direct the golden stream of light from the center of your heart to the person nearest you in this hall and fill him or her with warmth, a sense of well-being, contentment and joy. Surround him or her with your love. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to everyone here, filling everyone with the warmth from your heart, a sense of well-being, joy and contentment. And let the golden stream of light surround everyone with love. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to your parents' hearts. Fill them with warmth and joy, contentment, well-being. Embrace them with love. <coughs>
think of the people who are closest to you, your near and dear ones. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill them with warmth and joy and well-being. Embrace them with love without expecting the same in return. Think of all your good friends and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill them with your friendship, your warmth, giving them joy and contentment, surrounding them with love, not expecting to get the same back. Think of your neighbors at home, people you work with, all the people that you meet here and there, whether you know them or not. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart Reach out to all of them, giving them the gift of the warmth from your heart, filling them with joy and contentment, embracing them with love. No difference between them and your loved ones. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love and realize that this is only a blockage for your own heart. Forgive and forget and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person. filling him or her with your warmth, 
your friendship, your care, and surrounding him or her with your love and compassion. Think of all the people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. Maybe in hospital, in prison, in refugee camps. Hungry, blind, crippled, without shelter, without friends. Give them the gift of your heart. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart Reach out to all these people, wherever they may be, whoever they may be, filling them with your warmth, your friendship and your care, giving them hope, giving them some joy. Let this golden stream of light from the center of your heart flow out of you, full of love and warmth, to wherever it will go, near and far, touching other people's hearts. Let it flow as it will. put your attention back on yourself. Let the golden stream of light from your heart fill you from head to toe with light and warmth and joy and surround you with a feeling of well-being, of love, 
of being at ease. Let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, which closes its petals. And then anchor the lotus flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. May all beings be happy.